Hello, my name is Savannah Willits. And my name is Menahem Dakwi. And this is Progressing Planning, a podcast series on the role of planning in fostering change in contemporary society. In this episode, we'll be talking with Katrina Johnson-Zimmerman, an American urban anthropologist. She co-founded the Women-Led Cities Initiative and was recognized by BBC as one of the top 100 inspirational women in 2019. She studies heart-centered cities in which a care mentality comes first and focuses on a more humanistic approach to the building of cities. So, since you have a background in anthropology, what initially made you interested in cities, Katrina? Hi. Well, first of all, it's so great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I love talking about this. It is kind of odd to be an urban anthropologist. There is no degree for it, right? So I started in anthropology interested in ancient civilizations and society, how we can use qualitative research methods to make society better. And in the last term of my program at Arizona State University as an undergrad, I actually took a class on ancient cities from an archaeologist. And I had done archaeology. Very cool. But really, that class gave me a better insight as to how we as humans became urbanized in the first place. So I think it was like 2005 or 10, somewhere around there, we became urbanized as a species on the entire planet for the first time in history. And if you know about our earliest cities, it's actually only been about 10,000 years that we've been living in cities and not moving around as hunter-gatherers, right? So knowing that was really important for me to put that in perspective in relation to a contemporary context. But I was also introduced to Jane Jacobs and William H. Holly White. So a lot of urbanists, that's really the sort of like Bible, <laughs> for lack of a better word, one or the other, 100% is on everybody's bookshelves. But what I think was surprising about that from an anthropological perspective is that they were essentially doing anthropological research without being formally trained in it. So they were doing qualitative observational you know, methods. They were doing some quantitative behavior mapping methods, and also just that experiential aspect of being in a city. And that was revolutionary at the time. So essentially, I saw an opportunity to and a need to bring that to the forefront and went on to get my master's in urban studies and try and apply that to everyday urban planning and architecture practices. It still shocks me that the city is a relatively new invention. And just how much we have to explore the possibility of city making. Along those lines, cities have historically been designed by men. What do you think cities would look like if they're designed by and for women? Yeah, the first part of my thinking was really about the human scale. So if you continue the thinking beyond Holly White and Jane Jacobs, then what you're looking at is we need cities that are built to the human form again, as opposed to being auto-dominated as they have been in the last roughly 100 years. So a lot of companies, a lot of other books have come out around this idea, really just focusing on them being green or, um, you know, happy and healthy. It's like the human scale literally physically as a human form be able to have us adapt to the environment a lot better. You know, the built environment is essentially, if you think of it a different way, it's an artificial ecosystem, first and foremost. It's something that we created for ourselves 
we invented it and <laughs> basically we can do whatever we want to some extent, right? So once you understand that control and uh, sort of, you know, the newness of that, because there's still a lot for us to understand about ourselves and our environment, then you also have to think about who is in charge of doing that. And in more recent, you know, decades, urban planning is a profession or architecture is a profession. It didn't used to be a profession, right? So you can look and see who exactly has the know-how and the certification to do that. But then you have to think more about who those people are physically, like individuals behind that power and that action. And that goes for anything in our world, right? So at this time, when it comes to cities and basically all of the history of cities, that power has been in the hands of primarily men. And it's only recently, especially in American architectural context, if you if you actually look at the numbers, it's only recently that women and especially women of color have become architects and had some sort of influence over the built environment to that extent, literally just a few decades. It's really um, not been that long. So we, in a lot of ways, don't even know what a city would look like if it was different because we wake up and we look outside and we think, okay, this is what a road looks like. Like, this is what a building looks like. This is what a train is. This is how I'm supposed to get around. This is how I'm supposed to live. Even inside, you know, in your private spaces where kitchen is, you know, or whatever, anything um, in our daily lives, we just kind of take it for granted. So really kind of peeling back those layers and thinking more about that control allows us to open up to possibilities. And I think that's what's beautiful about it is essentially the future can be totally open when it comes to what a city can look like when it is built by different people than it has been built by in the past. Beautiful. I love the phrase artificial ecosystem because that's exactly what it is. And you have all these range of possibilities we can do. And with that, I think you've in your talks, you've emphasized that with all these range of possibilities, we can stress empathy and compassion as the way forward in our cities. And for you, how would we teach this that further? How can we plan and build this into the city? Yeah, that I think is one of the biggest things to shift our consciousness around when it comes to cities. Because up until now, the status quo, once again, as you look out your window and sort of go about your life, the status quo of our society in a city has really been this kind of commercialization concept, this real competitive angle. Like the city is where the action is. It's where all of the excitement, you know, it's where people want to be. Uh, you got to get ahead. You're trying to reach that corner office in the skyscraper, right? You know, if you're talking about major, you know, cities in particular, London and New York City being the best examples of that, right? If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. And it's like, why is a city... Uh, like a synonym for competition. Like, <laughs> like that to me is just absurd. You know, if you think of it as an artificial ecosystem, and if you look at our earliest cities and how we originally built them, then a city is really just a home. It's a compilation of buildings that we have put together. And you could almost think of it as like a giant co-housing, you know, experiment. It's like, sure, we need to get food and go to work or move around and do fun things and be outside and everything else and go to school. But it's a system of systems. And the more we think of it as that kind of forest analogy, but artificially created, then the better I think we can make it work for people because it's not working right now right it hasn't been working and we constantly try and struggle for the right sort of solution again green or smart or whatever and there is no silver bullet i don't think except to think more 
in terms of this concept of care and compassion. It's like how to be a good neighbor, like <laughs> at the risk of sounding like Sesame Street, <laughs> which I'm totally okay with because I definitely grew up with that show. You know, there's no reason not to. Yeah. If that is how we as humans are supposed to be and interact with each other, if that's really what makes us successful on this planet, even though we're also incredibly detrimental to this planet, our cooperation is in reality what got us to this point. And that is our, as a strength, should be our core tenant of an urban environment as well. So looking like care center, compassion, co-living, rather than competition, concrete, and capitalism. Yeah, <laughs> basically. Uh, you know, every city just tries to get ahead. You know, it's like you in the workplace, right? It's like when we have wage transparency, we actually get along a lot better. If there isn't such a strict hierarchy, say, for instance, of architecture firms, we don't get stark attacks, right? You know, that has been detrimental to us this entire time, trying to get bigger, taller, faster. Innovation doesn't actually have to be something that is entirely new something that has already happened that is the most simple thing of all time, like a human scale building with a porch and a park, right? <laughs> and play space. That's innovative at this point. So yeah, kindness, openness, transparency, and trust is absolutely innovative. And we should 100% try and seek that out. And it doesn't have to be cutthroat to be cutting edge. No, thank you. That is the best way of saying that. That's wonderful. I love the idea of taking kindness, cooperation, and trust as central tenants when looking at urban planning. So looking forward, what do you think will be the main issues facing cities in the next 10 to 15 years? Future cities as a general concept is really one of my favorite things, absolutely. And I think that there's a risk at sounding, again, innovation, you know, how to move forward in the best, you know, most exciting way. Absolutely. There's also a risk of sounding a bit doom and gloom about some things, climate change, namely being the most important. And I think there is a reason to be alarmed. Obviously, it's not even climate. It's the climate crisis at this point. But I think it also gives us an opportunity in a really weird way of phrasing that same with the pandemic. If we face a crisis, humans tend to come together pretty quickly. You know, folks will volunteer, they'll give away things, they'll take somebody into their house. They will suddenly show emotion really openly when it's a when it's a disaster scenario. And just because we're in a crisis doesn't mean we have to stop that level of care and compassion, right? It just means that it's not as pressing for us. But looking to the future city, that said, we are going to face an incredibly dire crisis in the climate crisis. It, it will be an ongoing emergency, much in the same way that the pandemic has been an ongoing sort of slow rolling disaster. And we'll see things pick up in speed too as they go along. And so I think as a kind of practice run, for lack of a better word, we are seeing the ways in which we can change the system when we need to. And we're gonna have to translate that into changing it because we need to on an ongoing basis, not just when an actual disaster happens, like an earthquake or a forest fire or you know a major flood or something like that. I think to flip that on its head, again, it really shows us kind of our better character as, a, as human beings when it comes down to that. And so if we can hold on to that and build that kind of trust 
and vulnerability as a part of our sustainable system into the future with our cities, then we will be able to get through this. I mean, I'm also an optimist, but also like humans are very adaptable. <laughs> you know, we really somehow kind of make it through everything. Knock on wood. <laughs> but in the city of the future, when it comes down to that, I think it's just going to mean a lot more of a breakdown of the static systems that we've had. Everything is so siloed. You know, it's like transportation over here or education over here and what have you. And I think we're finally coming to terms with the idea that all of this in our life, anybody's life, is very interconnected. Like making the choice to take public transportation over driving alone when you have to be masked up and, you know, not around people or something like that. Especially if you're in a vulnerable position, that's incredibly, you know, impactful on your life. That changes the way you do everything. Same with having your children at home if you have children um, and have to care for them and go to work and everything else, right? So I think we're seeing a prioritization of what needs to happen. And it's up to us to essentially outline those priorities and make them a reality moving forward. I think that's a really nice way of framing it, especially talking about crisis situations as opportunities for people to come together. And I think we really did see that over the pandemic. So moving away from this a little bit, how do you think the right to the city has translated into the public spaces that you've observed? I think what I love the most about the right to the city is that We've never somehow, I don't know how, but <laughs> amazingly, we've never somehow had some sort of right to existence in that ecosystem that we've created. We have a right to a bunch of other things, you know, in life, or we're supposed to have a right to a bunch of other things. In the United States, that includes happiness or whatever have you, whatever that's defined as. And being able to frame it in that way is really lovely. I think it also, though, on the flip side of that, I think it kind of, again, glosses over. It sort of skips around the idea, again, of care and compassion, really just getting to the heart of the issue. But it is translatable. And one of the most exciting things that I've seen from the women-centered um, city perspective has been the adoption of the language of the right to the city in the UN Habitat 3 charter by specifically Paris and Barcelona mayors, Ada Colau and Anne Hidalgo. And the two of them are the first female mayors of their cities. They're doing a really amazing job at transforming public spaces on the ground. And they're pushing for whatever policy, whatever language, whatever concepts work best with the broader community in order to get that agenda done. And that is a care-centered agenda. That is, it's not as bland as it sounds with right to the city, you know, sounds very technical, academic, and so forth. But what they're doing is making changes necessary for the greater good in that in that compassionate way. My favorite is the super block system or the 15 minutes. Everybody's calling 15 minute city at this point, too. Of course, it's like whatever you want to call it. Fine. The super block system in Barcelona being such that it allow just essentially transforming inner streets in back into public spaces as they are they are public spaces they belong to all of us but they don't work for all of us and that's the point of public spaces they need to work for all of those potentialities in our life because that is the space where life happens that is you know the space between buildings um, outside of our private realm and it's incredibly important for the sociability of our species because we're very social species and being outside for health and everything else right so if a street is causing asthma and traffic deaths, 
and it, through crashes and bad quality of life through noise pollution, right? There's so many aspects of streets that are so detrimental to us, especially in neighborhoods of color that have been completely decimated by highway construction, especially in the United States, but elsewhere as well. What, what makes more sense then? It makes sense to tear that highway down, bring us back together. It makes sense to close down that inner street that is otherwise just an extra open space that could be used as a play space and can be greener and healthier and, you know, happier for everybody. Getting past the hurdle of that obstruction of that initial reaction from people, because again, waking up in our status quo and understanding, you know, thinking this is the way it is, that's the struggle. And that's the real true courage in care and compassion. It's not just some fuzzy, soft concept. It's absolutely such a powerful, courageous act to say, we need to do something different because it is going to be better for us. And they take the heat for that. And they're so impressive. It is very impressive, but it's also very visionary to think through a care center agenda or a care centered lens in all aspects of the city, from transportation to housing to public spaces, and what that does to a city and its people. It's like an umbrella concept, you know? It's like if we can do all of those different things under this umbrella of that care concept, then it will all click into place. It's definitely doable. I agree. I think that's definitely possible. So before we close our discussion today, since you have studied many different urban contexts, do you have a favorite city? Oh, what a great question. Okay, I have two and I'll say <laughs> play favorites. And I'll but tell yes. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Playing favorites. Okay, so I'm gonna be very nerdy about this to start with. So I, you know, this is how I bridge the gap between everything. But I'm going to name an ancient city because you didn't say current city. So I'm just saying. So I'm gonna say an ancient city because this is sort of like my love language here. But one of my favorite cities is Chatelhoyuk, which is our earliest city that existed in modern day Turkey in the Fertile Crescent area. So as we became urbanized, this was one of the first places that we um, made for ourselves in that way as that artificial environment. And the system that we had in place there was absolutely phenomenal. It very, it was, it was a transition period between our hunter gatherer existence and our eventual very urbanized existence and it was like that beautiful sweet spot. And unfortunately, it went away. A lot of those systems as we got bigger as I don't know what else happened. It's still kind of unknown as to why a lot of things shifted. But for that moment in time, the city was like a giant commune. It was like 7000 people roughly at its peak. And that was a very big city. That was a very big settlement. And we had better gender equality, like there was no difference in the grave goods that we can tell about the hats and jewels or whatever. You know, there was no hierarchy, there didn't seem to be somebody in particular who was in charge, who was dictating the haves and have nots, there were no haves and have nots, essentially, you know, even children were raised by the commune in that way. They found evidence that they were shared. I and mean, literally, like you would have a child, then you had another one, then maybe it went to a different couple. Really interesting way of that cohabitation concept that some people try and do today, but this was on a citywide scale. That is my favorite ancient city in the contemporary context. I do actually really love Stockholm, but I moved to Philadelphia by choice and I'm from this area originally. So I probably have a bit of a pull back to it in that sense. But I think it has the best potential in the United States to really 
exemplify all of those ideas built environment wise and concept wise. It is one of the most segregated cities in the US. It is also one of the most diverse. It's majority minority, which is, you know, not the right way to talk about it at this point in our population level, but um, for the purposes of demographics, in that sense, it's huge. It's incredibly diverse. It also has this really amazing street grid that wasn't really changed too dramatically. Some highways were actually fought against, like in New York with Jane Jacobs. We had our own on South Street, which is like just a couple blocks away from where I live. And uh, it was also beaten. Yeah, uh, it was it was totally protested against and stopped. So we have the ability to make a bikeable city. All of these row homes are superhuman scale. We have a downtown that's not too CBD, you know, built up in that sense. And we have public transit that is really excellent. That can be even better. And it's flat and pretty okay with climate, the climate crisis, you know, in terms of like risk at risks from different disasters where we are now. Uh, I just I just think personally, like the people, the place, the opportunity, I see the possibilities, I think is what it is. And the potential really gets me. So I'm very happy to be here in Philly. I live in a very like Jane Jacobs-esque neighborhood, like the Greenwich Village of Philly. <laughs> but everybody should have that potential. And it's, again, definitely doable. Everybody can live in that kind of a place. Everybody can have that kind of rootedness in place, uh, access to public space, that sociability and that ability to grow and just feel a sense of ownership over the city, which is what we all really need to make it that better place for ourselves and each other. So well said. And with that, we end today's podcast. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today, Katrina. This has been absolutely phenomenal. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. And thanks to Katrina for talking to us. For more information, you can visit our blog at this address, www.blog.lsc.ac.uk forward slash progressing planning. So hopefully we'll see you soon. Bye.